0: Welcome to episode 4 of the Hoops Fix podcast. I know I say this every time, but it has been a while. I've been meaning to get back on it. last few weeks have been absolute madness. My last three weekends have literally been Italy for Adidas Eurocamp. Then my own event, the Hoops Fix All-Star Classic. And then um, this weekend I was just in Paris for K54. So it's just been absolute madness. And now with things starting to settle down a little bit, it is my intention, I know I said this last time, to start getting consistent with it. I have scheduled in Monday... As my day to um, do the interviews, so that I can start releasing these on a regular basis. I want to create a backlog so that I will always hit a date, which I'll announce on the site when we, um, when I decide what the actual schedule will be. So for episode four, uh, we managed to get the main man, John Amici. Not Amici, Amici. He did explain how his name is pronounced, though he doesn't mind it being spelled, um, being pronounced either way. Um, But yeah, I managed to sit down and have a chat with him. We've been working together on some projects over the last few weeks, which you will hear more about in the coming weeks, um, which are very exciting. Uh, He's going to be getting involved with the game uh, and giving back, which is just awesome. And we've produced a a little video, which will be coming soon, which I'm really excited about and hopefully will be very well received. Um, And the reason I wanted to get him on uh, is because one, he is just typecast as the negative British basketball guy, you know, um, which I just think is, is completely unfair, especially for someone that has invested close to a million pounds of his own money um, into, into basketball in this country. Um, but also because all the interviews that he ever does pretty much centre around either him being negative around British basketball, talking about British basketball, um, or about uh, current issues with um, gay athletes in sport. And what I wanted to do was talk about the basketball side of things. Uh, he's very underrated um, as a player and doesn't seem to be remembered that actually this guy is, you know, by the end of the interview, we, decided, we kind of came to the conclusion, you know, probably the sec- second, second best British basketball player of all time um, behind Lowell uh, and, and one that, you know, has achieved a lot. He was the first player, uh, first undrafted player in the history of the NBA to make a starting lineup which is just huge, and people forget that he actually had a very, very successful basketball career. So in this interview, we basically ended up speaking a lot longer than I planned to. It goes on about an hour and 45 minutes, um, and we spoke about everything to do with his career, starting from how he first got into the game, to going out to the States, to high school, to college, uh, and then his pro career, uh, talks about playing for England as well. And it was just really, really fascinating. And for anyone that's a British basketball fan, I feel like there's a lot of value there, um, which makes really, really interesting listening. Um, so yeah, I will wrap it up there. That's enough from me. I will hopefully be back very soon in the near future with the next episode, episode five. Um, but in the meantime, have a listen. Let me know what you think. My email is sam at hoopsfix.com. I reply to every single one of them. I'm always available. Or you can get me to Twitter at Um and hopefully, uh, you know, I'll hear from you all soon. Make sure you give it a, a decent rating on iTunes and a review that helps the podcast in the, in the rankings and will help it reach more people, which is obviously the goal of this. I don't want to do it and it's not listened to by anyone. So we're trying to get it as far and as, 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 as wide as possible. Um, so please share it and talk about it with your friends. So thank you very much. That's enough for me. I'll hand you over um, to John and myself um, in a hotel in Hoburn on thursday the 26th of june i'm very honored to be here with john amici today um now before we get started i just want to get one thing clear how do you pronounce your name
1: i say amici yeah but because people know that my nickname when i play basketball was meach people assume it's amici i'm fine with either way
0: okay all right cool that's good to know um yeah i mean like Obviously, you, you're in the press a lot, uh, and I feel like even though you're in the press a lot, a lot of the time it's actually not about basketball or not about the things that you've done basketball-wise. And um, you know, I think if people do the research and they know their facts, it's actually clear that you're one of the greatest British basketball players of, of all time. Do you feel a little bit um, kind of overlooked in that sense? Does it get frustrating that you don't get to sort of talk about your basketball career as much?
1: I mean, the truth is I feel I've very much moved on. Um, When I retired I I had something else that I really wanted to do. I didn't accidentally slip into psychology. That was what I wanted to do from seven years old. I just got sidetracked by basketball. Um, I don't feel it's a shame that I don't get to talk about it. I feel it's a shame that people don't ask me about it. Um, I, I just think it's really fascinating in a time when basketball needs more expertise. That they don't tap into all the available expertise. And that, quite, you know, without sounding paranoid, it's very clear to me that I'm not just not asked, I am avoided with this great big sphere of fear um, because people fear what I might say.
0: What do you think it is that they're scared of?
1: <sighs> the truth. I mean, I, I'm, my tone is not always as um, warm. Uh, in critique, outside of my work where I'm, I'm pretty pretty professional but in basketball my tone <clears throat> over the years <clears throat> has really descended into um, at, at times I just there's no other way than just to scream and shout from the rafters people forget that I'm from the generation of British basketball, English basketball as it was back then that was eating pot noodles on road trips to Russia that was walking past um, murdered prostitutes into the entrance of the hotels that we'd been chosen to stay in you know ha- being introduced to spaghetti bolognese as <clears throat> barely cooked pasta with tomato ketchup on top cold I, I, came fr- I came through when there was nothing in basketball and not only that my, the very beginnings of my, of my time with basketball were really weird I often look at the number of caps that I have and I'm just kinda I shake my head and it's like, wow, my, my first cap came after I was already I was already nominated to be an all American. It's like, how does it t- wow and, and it wasn't like now where, you know, keeping track of players is kind of your thing. You, yeah. you you follow all these kids and there's just hundreds it seems of them all over the place. Back then, on one hand you could count the number of players who weren't in England. Yeah. Um, so it, it just, I think my history with basketball makes me a little less patient. But the, the truth is, in, in the end, I have no investment in the game. When, when people talk about basketball, so many times I think you should look at what their angle is. Are they making money out of t-shirts? Are they making money out of camps? Are they making money out of whatever it is? Uh, and I don't. So when I speak, it's not for my benefit. I want young people to have an aspirational league. I want... Young people to get paid to play, for like a career, not a job. And I want our standards to rise. I and mean, I just think there's there's a way of doing that, and we haven't been doing it.
0: I feel like you get tarnished. You know, everyone's just like, "Oh, there's, you know, John speaking again. Here he goes criticizing basketball again. He should be positive. He should do this." I mean, for me, I feel like uh, you're refreshingly honest. And and the reality is, if people actually listen to what you've got to say, a lot of it is is very much on point. Do you find that annoys you a little bit that that people aren't willing to listen? They just want to instantly brush you off as just the negative guy
1: yeah i mean especially and it goes back to that thing again it's especially frustrating because i don't want i don't have any iron in this fire i I don't have anything to gain by basketball becoming more popular and young kids having a better opportunity i just simply think that's the way it should be you shouldn't have to be the most extraordinary athlete in your city, in order to have any chance at all of becoming a good basketball player, whereas, and that's the way it is right now, the pathway to being excellent in basketball is so tortuous. It's it's strewn with exploitative agents. You know, the fact that we have agents in Britain is crazy <laughs> to me. Um, coaches who can't coach. I saw a coach the other day teaching a left-handed layup off the left foot, <laughs> and, and, and I see stuff like that, and I just think. That's why I scream. Yeah. If we can't get left-handed layups right, we're in trouble.
0: Talking about that, that kind of era that you're from, you know, I think even in this day and age right now, it's amazing for a British person to make the NBA. But back then, before the internet, before the easy communication routes with college coaches and everything else, like, uh, you, know, you say it yourself, like, how does like, a 17-year-old player who's just started playing make the NBA? How did you do it
1: from Manchester of all places as well? You make Manchester sound like it's uh, in the middle of nowhere, typical Londoner. Um, The truth is that, I mean, I started basketball primarily because I was walking down Market Street, which is the main shopping street in Manchester. Some guy came up to me and I was expecting the usual, how tall are you, what's the weather like, all that stuff. And instead, he said, you know, you'd be great at basketball. And I'd never considered that because my youth consisted mostly of eating pie and reading books, much (laughs) like my old age. And so here I am. I mean, I think on that day, literally like a Greg Steak slice in my hand. And this man says, you'd be great at basketball. And I'd never considered sport. I mean, I I went in my school. I played lacrosse because I knew I'd be so terrible at it that after one year of playing it, I would no longer have to play. That's (laughs) how much I was into sport. I could be found on most of our Wednesday afternoons we played sport, games day, right? And most Wednesday afternoon I could be found with a forged sick note in the library. That was my thing. But this guy just made me see myself a bit differently. Instead of nerdy fat kid, um, I was the only, I mean, being a 6'9 black kid in, well, 6'7", I suppose at that point, black kid in Stockport, makes you a bit of a, a rare thing and um, Manchester not much better and then all of a sudden this guy made me think that I could be great at something and I wanted all of that so I, that's how I started playing I show up at a Chorlton Community College gym it doesn't exist anymore now but, um, and I stood outside the door and I could hear all the basketball noises the bouncing of the, the balls the, the squeaking of the, the shoes and I walked in there and every single person I still play with these reprobates on a Wednesday now in my centre we're all old and fat but and every single one of them kind of ran up to me and was like I want you on my team and, I was like, and it was addictive I was, it was the first time I've been seen as a commodity uh, and I thought this was the most amazing feeling I want this every day and you don't have a conversation with people in basketball without immediately talking about the NBA and that was the first time I'd heard of it I certainly and I, I had no concept of uh, money in the game I had no concept of Glamour and all that stuff that's around basketball. <clears throat> my interest was I wanted it to be that if people had to talk about um, who's the best basketball player ever i would I wanted all the people who'd ever said something stupid or ridiculous to me to have to say it was me um, and so it was not more than six months after that that I just that I told my mother I was going to play uh, in the nBA I just sat in her bed one night and said, "Look, I'm not you know." I don't know what university I want to go to but I know it's in America um, and she said we had to make a plan and we did And the, the, plan, <coughs> the plan the plan the plan yeah which was really it wasn't so much must do this then this then this though there was a really practical side to it too but it was also about how to make decisions how to think about my future which is it's hard for 17 year olds I think you've got so much other stuff on it, it, the plan was about what sacrifices I would have to make and what um, what things I would have to improve in myself. And it was really a lot about introspection. I, you know, I'm a psychologist. I'm big on people understanding themselves. And, and that started there. Because I had to realize the only reason I made it to the NBA was by realizing that I like cake more than I like exercise. <laughs> that sweating to me felt toxic at the time. And it wasn't just because I didn't do it, I mean, I just didn't like it. That runner's high thing. I have run a lot in my career. I never once got that. <laughs> Runners sick. I've been that many times. Um, but th- we made this plan together, and then the practical side of it was that, I mean, this is I mean, this is pre-email. Yeah. So I wrote 3,000 letters to America. We found this book, uh, Fulbright Commission. I think they still exist now. Their role is slightly different, but back then they had these books you could buy, with the listings of high school and college. Places. But what I did know about America was that I could not play in college straight away because I've been playing for six months. I just thought that wasn't quite practical enough though. Apparently playing in the NBA was. <laughs> and uh and so I wrote three thousand letters to America that were essentially Hello, my name's John, I'm six foot nine and black. Are you interested in having me on your team? And, I, and then I, we just this handwritten again. Was it actually three thousand? And again, three thousand. Actually, three thousand. Yeah, we picked. We didn't. We didn't pick out obviously every high school. Yeah. But we picked. Uh, you know, there are fifty states, and we picked a, a number of t- of of, uh, of schools from major cities in fifty in all fifty states, including Alaska, which I I don't <laughs> think I understood where it was <laughs> or what the implications of that might be. But yes, I'm very glad I didn't get a reply from there. <laughs>
0: So the, the the first club that you played for in England was actually Manchester United, Yeah. and I didn't even realize they were involved with in basketball until I read your book. So what was the situation with them? And you know, was the basketball thing like a a charitable arm of the football club, or like how, how did it work? Like, what was the, what was to be situation?
1: honest, I'm not even sure. Um, I, I think it was it, I think it was Manchester United in their era of trying to become more like uh, the Spanish mega clubs. Okay. Yeah, I think they were just looking around to see what other properties and the only well organized property in Manchester that kind of fit into that team sport male team sport because you know that's the way it works um was basketball. And so I think that's how we got hooked in. They were already Manchester United when I got there. Yeah. I didn't know anything about Manchester United. I'm I've never been a huge football fan. So Me neither. <laughs> um so I've never really uh, been involved in that side but all I know is that I got there and it was just amazing to see these athletes Uh, amazing to watch games where we got access obviously because we're on the junior team while watching major European powers come into Stretford Leisure (laughs) Centre and it didn't there was nothing because I'd never seen anything different I'd never seen a European court so the idea that you know 1,800 people is not a big audience had never struck me but you're watching these amazing I remember watching the first first big man I, I really saw play from another team it was a guy called Art Housy uh, I don't know it's probably American okay. big as a house and I remember watching him just turn around and just crush he could do nothing else but crushing dunks yeah. and I was like that's what I want to be <laughs> I mean I was so ridiculous because I have zero athletic ability in that, in that space um, but I, I saw this and I was like right there's, a, there's another level here and this is while well, I'm in the process of writing off and it just made me even more certain that college was a no-no uh, straight away so I needed that one year of high school
0: and the, that transition am I right in thinking you went to a camp in Virginia yeah was went, that before or after no letters? that was
1: that was in the that was in the choosing point so the okay. three emails the three emails, that, yeah. three letters I got back yeah. were um, a school in Roanoke Virginia which is in the middle of nowhere uh, and then two schools in Toledo I almost think it's like one school sent one back and then they had a chat and they're like well if you're sending one I'm sending one <laughs> And so the summer before, uh, we arranged, my mother arranged, uh, at, at, you know, what then back then was considerable expense, to send me to the States, to Virginia and Toledo. And I spent three days in Virginia. No, I spent a week in Virginia because there was a camp on. That's right. There was this uh, uh, University, Roanoke University basketball team camp. And so I was with the team that I would play with in their team camp. It was very cool.
0: You entered the dunk contest?
1: I entered the dunk contest. <laughs> that, that, that actually... <clears throat> I'd forgotten about that.
0: Talk to you about that. No, I no. That, 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 when I read that, I was like, wow.
1: No, that was the first and last dunk contest I ever entered. I was, I, I was goaded into it. And I don't know why, because it's not like back then I was I a was big-time athlete. That hasn't diminished with time. I just never had that. Um, yeah, and I didn't know what to do, because I'd never... I mean dunking is just not something that was ever part of my game I'm kind of king of the finger roll It's my thing <laughs> lefty hook shots across yeah. the lane that, that, that kind of thing and so I don't know what to do and all of a sudden my team's around me and they're saying yeah enter this so I'm like okay I enter it do my first dunk and it's just a dunk you know tomahawk or something who knows <clears throat> then the next one they're like get somebody out there and I was like okay I get somebody out there but I don't, what am I supposed to do I'm not going to jump over it and they're like no don't worry about it just get somebody out there <laughs> so I get somebody out there who stands under the basket and then I run up and he's standing directly in the basket I run up directly down the pipe and then I just dunk it as hard as I can and run through the guy <clears throat> was it perfect? perfect 50 straight 10s <laughs> everybody was really excited about it but I just I was like I don't know there's nothing else I can do from there and I just kind of went and the next guy came along threw it up behind his head through his legs and dumped it and I was like thank goodness I don't have to do this anymore <laughs> it's really humiliating actually at
0: least <laughs> you can say you've done it um so around was it around this time there was some when I was going through your footage recently for this video that we're working on. Um, one of the things i noticed was that obviously you always went left mm-hmm. and you always finished left and, and there were literally was not even one right-handed finish that i could find and the commentators were commenting com- commenting on it, in it as well um and of course i read your book and then i found out that something that happens so if you talk about exactly what happened when when was that around
1: this was um it was right actually it was right as i began to uh think about basketball as right as i started it, it must have been a couple of months after that that I went on a biology field trip right to anglesey with my school and everybody hated this trip right? it was just it's cold it's wet you have to put out these squares on bits of uh, of the 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 uncovered uh, kind of coastline when the, the the tides out and then you have to count the biomass <laughs> you know counting the number yeah. of these nymphs and that seaweed and i hated it um, but on that trip we were staying at these chalets and they were, they were horrible horrible and I walked up to the door one night and pushed the door open and I pushed the door open with the glass and my arm just went right through so it wasn't like you, you punched it or went hard oh, no, through no, no, it. No. it you just no. pushed no as, as, as vociferous as, as kind of aggressive as my language can be it's not how I am as a, yeah. physically no uh, and so my, I just pushed the door open t- to walk in and of course my arm goes right through And there's like a little scar on my forearm way up by the elbow. And that's the only thing that got hurt. And I was like, this is amazing. And the weird part with my mother is that she always gave me strangely appropriate advice at times when you didn't need it, but it it comes in handy. So I'm here with my hand stuck through a pane of glass. Just a tiny little bit of bleeding from this this one tiny scratch. And I suddenly remember, you never pull your hand through glass because it'll end up like corned beef and that's something my mother told me at some random yeah. time in the past and so I'm like right I've got to pull this out carefully and that's what I do I pull it out really carefully and it's, everything is fine Yeah, because I've broken enough of the glass with my palm that it's not even it's not touching me Yeah, and I'm pulling out everything's good and then all of a sudden this bit of putty lands on my, my hand and I look up just in time to see the whole pane of glass just drop and it, it's like a guillotine it just chops Every tendon, every artery, every nerve in the top of my hand uh, to a point where I don't have any feeling uh, on the top of my hand at all. Um, Except for hot and cold, weirdly, for everything. Um, And then I I just remember doing that. My friend, my best friend, Peter, was on the other side of the door. And of course, when this drops, uh, I mean, there's an unbelievable amount of blood.
2: Yeah.
1: It's all over me. I'm wearing a cagoule. It's the only thing that stopped me from getting soaked (laughs) through. And it, even the cagoule is all shredded on the arms now. Uh, and he's covered in blood. And so he throws a, really resourceful, throws me a kitchen towel. And I wrap, I have to pull my hand together oh. and then wrap it up in this kitchen towel. And I walk over to the teacher's bungalow. Um, And I get, and I knock. And I remember saying, I think I need to go to the hospital. <laughs> And Mr. Greg, my biology teacher, looks at me, looks at my hand, and it just, I mean, goes white, whiter. Um, gets me in the back of this Peugeot. It's amazing. I have very vivid memories of this whole event. <laughs> yeah. Gets me in the past, back of this Peugeot, and I'm lying down, and all I can taste, if you've ever tasted blood, it's like really bitter. And because I'm holding, I'm lying on my back, and I'm holding my arm above my, yeah. my face, to, above my chest to stop the bleeding from being so great, and it's just, I'm just covering and All I can taste is it, my own blood as we go. And then off to Anglesey Hospital, where they put this blood pressure cuff on my upper arm that stops the bleeding. But also means that you can only do that for a certain amount of time before you lose yeah. your arm. Um, and then, uh, just a really stupid thing. I was, I was always very concerned when I was young that my mother worked too hard. And I instructed, and I can't believe he took my word. I instructed my teacher and the hospital staff not to call my mother because it was too late. <laughs> so they did not call her until the next morning. She was furious. Wow. Furious. But then made calls. She was the GP. yeah, Doctor in Cheadle. And so she made calls and I was transferred by ambulance. I went from Anglesey to Bangor Hospital where they, you know, gave me, uh, closed off the artery with some sutures. Yeah, And then um, uh, Bangor to Manchester, uh, Withington, whichever one's not here anymore. One of the hospitals, uh, okay, and they. I got a great surgeon who s- sewed me up and uh, told me that it was on, he'd only had one person had this operation who didn't end up with a claw hand, which is a hand yeah, that's fixed, yeah. uh, and that was a US, uh, no, that was a British Marine. Wow. Uh, and I was like, yeah. yeah, well, I'm gonna play basketball, so
0: and that was the beginning of you working on your left hand and it becoming as strong as it ended up being,
1: yep. I mean, the weird part is that I can easily go right. It just that going left became such an advantage. Yeah. Because they see me shoot, players automatically think right-handed shooter because I shoot jump shots with my right hand. Yeah. And their brain shuts off then. And they don't realise I'm still going to go left every time, even if I'm going to come back with a right-handed jump shot.
0: Yeah. I think in the book you said that uh, you... You saw a scouting report, and it said that you went left seventy three percent of the time, or yeah. something like that. Yeah, it's just crazy. It's
1: amazing. You know that that was in Phoenix. And yeah. I remember that because I I lived in Phoenix at the time, and they let me use their locker room, so I could instead of going back with the team to the hotel, I could go to my house. Yeah. And I remember seeing this scouting report that was left in the locker room, and, and I I'd, I'd seen our scouting reports, but I didn't. I'd never seen myself kind of analyzed in such detail. It's yeah. amazing.
0: Yeah. So. You went to the states. Uh, you enrolled at St John's High School. You did a, a year there, and then you went to Vanderbilt, mm-hmm. right? Um, how was that experience at Vanderbilt?
1: Uh, Vanderbilt was tough because it's. It, I had that year of high school, and it cost money. The school I went to cost money to go to. You paid. Yeah. Okay. It's out of state. I think it was eight hundred pounds, and it was just like it was the most money that any one of the children in, in my family had ever had Spent invested it, yeah. in them um, it, it was just incredible uh, as, especially for a flyer and, and I also I felt really good going to Vanderbilt because that's what I had to do at the end of that year if I didn't have a scholarship it was it I was yeah. coming home and I, and I didn't want to have to face people having told them that I was going to play in the NBA back in Manchester
0: or so you've been quite open with everyone I am going to play in the NBA talking the trash and whatever else and saying that's what was going to
1: happen I've never been an eloquent uh, <laughs> trash talker but yes I told Just it wasn't even trash talking it was a very matter of fact yeah you know I played against a kid at uh, Fog Lane Park um, who, who always used to just go on He was one of those guys who could do all kinds of dribble stuff but had no game yeah and he always used to talk stuff and I was like no I'm, I'm going to play in the NBA that, that's it in my school yearbook I wrote, I'm going to play in the NBA, uh, and I, I just wanted everybody to know, This is just so you know, this is the decision <laughs> I've made.
0: Yeah. And so the, schol- the college scholarship was obviously what you needed to do to get yeah. there, so, so you, I already felt, you chose Vanderbilt.
1: Yeah, I already felt a great sense of achievement, and I picked Vanderbilt not by accident, I mean I picked it because it had a great psychology program, and it, had, it was a level of basketball I knew I could play.
0: And you had a number of options,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, I mean I was, I was recruited by five or six Big Ten teams. Um, all the top ones
0: what, what was the recruitment process like
1: you right. know, is it
0: like it is like
1: in That's the movies brilliant. Like- no no it's brilliant <laughs> it's better than in the, in the movies and it, especially it was better than in the movies back then because as badly regulated as the NCAA is now back then it was the wild west <laughs> it was the wild west I used to I used to wake up in the morning and FedEx or somebody else will have delivered another shirt with my name on the back I got an audio cassette this is going back a little bit but I got an audio cassette from one school that had mocked up a game uh, as if like radio playing yeah mocked up a game and inserted me into the game And <laughs> Amici gets the ball in the post he turns he shoots he scores and then well you can hear in the background oh yeah college, college crowd is going crazy <laughs> and then you get and it's not a little bit Yeah, a, it's a whole second half Really, you get to the end of the second the end of the game and, and, of course, I've played a pivotal role. I've had 25, <laughs> <Game winner. laughs> 25 points. He had a M-H-E with another double-double. What would this team do without him? Yeah. Um, it's just, it's amazing. Uh, and that kind of stuff was just every day. I mean, it, there was even... I don't know if I put this in my book, actually. There's even, you know, back then it was... It was even um, friends of friends of friends, or at least adult friends of friends of friends, saying, oh, can I, sit, can I take you to... I don't know some random chain restaurant. Olive Garden seemed to be a favourite, and I'm um, you know it's free food. I'll take that. Yeah. And uh, you sit down and the, you'll chat about nothing for forty-five minutes, and then all of a sudden it's like, so you're thinking about university. Well, I went to such and such <laughs> university, and I happen to know that they uh, they think a scholarship is important, but that it's really important to be generous to athletes. <laughs> <laughs> and you just had this roundabout conversation that never actually used the word, we're going to pay you loads of cash. Yeah. Uh, and, and in fairness, the schools that did this to me probably didn't, wouldn't pay loads of cash, not like some. But um, yeah, it was an amazing process.
0: So, then Vanderbilt, you, obviously, you, you went there, you were there for a year, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, didn't get on too well with the coach. Was it, didn't like the coach's style?
1: I mean, it wasn't that. I mean, uh, the, the coach was, was a ball breaker, yeah. uh, no doubt, a guy called Eddie Fogler. Um, he was a Kansas, North Carolina. You know that whole North Carolina, Kansas. Um, the guy from Kansas trained under the Dean Smith. Okay. He trained under Dean Smith, so he had that same kind of. Uh, you know, people think Dean Smith is this lovely, warm little guy, and he's a, he's brutal, brutal. Um, and so he had that approach. I didn't mind that. I'm I'm, I, I'm big on hard work. I'm big on really focusing on the details, on the minutiae, and he was. You know, he was huge on that uh, when you walked into practice there was a sheet written up and it had an offensive uh, emphasis of the day a defensive emphasis of the day and a practice schedule and when you start practice he would randomly point at somebody and say what's the offensive thing of the day and you think that's fine once but every practice so two a days you're now getting to the point where you're exhausted after three days of that every detail uh, you, you need to know it all and if you didn't we ran we yeah. just ran forever but that wasn't the problem for me. The problem was that he didn't think I could play. He told me, flat out, myself and my roommate um, Matt Maloney. He just said to us both. He brought us into the into his office and said, "Look, if you really want to play, you need to go to a Division two or three school." And we we both looked at each other like, "You are crazy," <laughs> you know. You you've and it wasn't overconfidence. It was just we knew we could play because yeah. we practiced, and then we'd go to the gym and we'd practice. Uh, and ourselves and then at night we'd play yeah. uh, admittedly with the college kids but in America it's a slightly different proposition than playing with random yeah. folk here. <laughs> but you've got to appreciate his honesty right
0: you know uh, yeah like, I but think it, a lot just, of coaches will string guys along and tell them and promise them the world and then sit on a bench for four years well,
1: my problem was it, it was so incongruent with what we saw like we saw ourselves in practice and, mm-hmm. and whilst nobody would, would suggest that we were freshman of the year in the SEC type quality we certainly were competing I mean the big guy the other big guy is a guy called Rob Nunnery 7 foot 2 a lovely bloke absolute stiff and I was like really you're having this conversation with me but you're not having this conversation with him yeah. and I know you can't teach height but good lord <laughs> you're going to have to teach him everything else um, and so we, we decided we had a conversation with Matt's dad who was the assistant coach at Temple and, and he said you either believe what you see or you believe what you hear and we, we believe what we saw so we both left he went to Penn in the Ivy League and I went to Penn State and the uh, best thing we've ever each of us ever did
0: how, how do you look back on your, on your college years at Penn State
1: they're amazing I mean I wish I wish I'd done more but it's impossible
0: You've done more in terms of
1: I was involved in everything. I I, I was involved a little bit in student government. I was involved, um, I got to know a lot of the people from the Interfraternity Council. I'm in in something, I'm in an honorary society that we can't talk about. (laughs) Uh, And these, all of these things just gave you access to to different things. And it made my experience of, of school, instead of it being this really narrow thing where all you do is eat, sleep, train, study, I had these other things. It meant my days were really full. And I got involved with uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters. Over the course of four years at Penn State, I had, um, with the year that I sat out, I had probably 45 little brothers, really? of whom I'm in touch still with about wow. 20 of them. Um, Can I remember in your you, you said you'd regularly go out at night and you know, walk the streets yeah. and, and pick
0: yeah. guys up and speak to kids and whatever yeah. else.
1: It was really cool because I, you know, I, I got a call from the chief of police in State College. Obviously, it's not a huge city, but it's a little town, really and I didn't know what it was all about and it was the fact that his patrol had noticed that I'm grabbing kids out of the arcade at night and, and sending them back home and he was like we need to work together and, and it was a really cool kind of affiliation that wasn't the hard part the nighttime bit the hard part was in the morning I had three kids that I was working with that just didn't get to school and you'd walk into their house and it'd be just a mess and it would stink of alcohol and you know dad would be asleep and yeah. In a quite it was like classic, classic broken families. Dad would be asleep in a corner, in a just, just absolutely pissed drunk, and you wouldn't know where the mother was, but she was somewhere in the house. And those are the kids I'd end up uh, taking to school in the morning. And that was the brutal part because that was before you take them to school. Then all of a sudden you've got your pre um, pre class schedule, which might be lifting or running yeah. or something. <coughs> then you've got class that ends at 2 I used to go from 8 until 2 2 o'clock you get some food um, and then 3 o'clock you be in practice wow it's, uh, it was a long days
0: how, how, so, so you were like what 18, 19 years old mm-hmm. what motivated someone at 18, 19 years old to, to kind of give back to the community like that and be such a high standing member of the community
1: um, I mean I didn't fully realise this probably until I was in the NBA but even in college I went to this first, it's kind of a shame because Penn State's got a bit of a shameful, and I've spoken out pretty loudly about it, a yeah. shameful period in its history where one of our system football coaches, not basketball, football coaches was abusing boys. Yeah. Um, but the, the one, if there's anything good about him, is that he was, he was the football coach that used to come around to all the new freshmen coming in and tell them about their responsibility. It's really ironic and sad. Our responsibility to give back to the community and so I went to this first event um, with this organization called Second Mile and I, I was nervous because I'm like what does a, a central Pennsylvania is pretty white pretty rural and I was like what does a, a black kid from you know I forgot I was from Stockport now I'm from Manchester so big city <laughs> in, in in England have in common with these kids all of them with you know rats tails and and mullets um Who live on farms, a lot of them, yeah, and I got there, and the first day I got there, I walk in, and all of a sudden these kids just flock around you and they 're so excited because they 've seen you um, that you 're a new player they 've seen that you 've seen the you know the preseason all this the stuff that 's out there about who's who 's woo and who 's going to play, and they 're so excited, and I was like, this is amazing. All just by showing up, I can have this impact. Well, imagine if I really put my mind to it, yeah. what you could do with it, and that's why I wanted to do more than just see a kid once and then piss off. I wanted to see a kid and I wanted to watch them grow over a year at least. And it ended up with most of the kids being a lot. I mean, I've, I've I go to so many weddings now, and <laughs> these kids are all at the age when they're married off and, and yeah. having families, and it's, it's amazing to watch how they've changed from some kid with that background that I described earlier to all of a sudden now they've got themselves sorted. And it's not me. I mean, it's just sometimes you need someone. Yeah. No, and, and if you have someone, you'll sort yourself out. And that's, what I think, what happened. And then, you know, on the court, you obviously became a bit of a celebrity
0: as well, right, yeah. at, at Penn State. You know, how, how was that whole experience?
1: It was great. I, I mean, Penn State was the perfect decision. It was the perfect decision. I knew that they would be billed to be the worst team in the Big Ten. And I knew that they needed immediate help, and I knew I'd play every second if I worked hard. And it was the, 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 year, the brutal year there was the year off. And I had a so conversation. You had to sit when you transferred? Yeah, yes, sit when <clears throat> The best thing that happened to me was a conversation with my coach, Bruce Parkle, who wasn't known for his warmth. And he sat down, he said, What you need to do with this year is every practice is your game. You get no game. So every practice is your game you must try and kick their ass I probably said ass kick their ass (laughs) yeah every single practice and so that's what I did and I literally did that in fact I got one of the assistant managers to keep scores so I knew exactly I I remember ending one practice that I I just felt like I just dominated I went over to the guy he looked at me he gave me this I said I had 72 points and 29 rebounds today pick up your game and then walked (laughs) off to the shower it's like yes yes (laughs) <laughs> this is this is and that's how I approached every single practice. I am here to destroy you. I wanted to make it I mean, even the next year then we started playing, I, I actually played games and in practice I was dominating so much that we had to have one of the green team members um, walk-ons. Yeah. One of the green team members come on because the double team wasn't stopping me. And so we needed to max out, and so we brought in a green team member. So every time I touched the ball, they'd stand on the baseline. And if I caught, caught the ball out on the perimeter, double team would do. On the block, somebody from the green team would come in, so I would face a triple team in order to be able to practice passing out of a trap and not just going right to the basket. It's good times on the floor. It's amazing. At what point did you actually realise,
0: oh, I'm actually quite good at basketball? Because you, know? you started so late from 17 to the time you were dominating college, it was only, what, like two years, two and a half years? Uh-huh. So at what point were you like, hey, I'm pretty decent? <laughs>
1: um, I'm not sure. I, I,
0: <laughs> Were you dominating in high school?
1: No. Oh, my goodness. So there was a pivotal moment in, in high school, right? So the beginning of the season, I just didn't know, and this is one of my big bugbears with British basketball, too. I didn't know what work was in a basketball context. I didn't know. I thought work was the product. So if you can finish nice and people go, ooh, that's work, right? Yeah. If I can make somebody fall over, that's actually like, it's like gymnastics, and I get more points for that. That is how I operated in England. And I got to America, and I suddenly realized that we had a schedule that didn't involve any court time. Uh, I, t- I spoke to Jamie, who was the center on the team. Jamie Hap, good Lord. And I, and I spoke to this guy, and I said, so what are the, when were when you we getting on the court? And he just looked at me, and i like, no, no, no. Everything we did for the first two weeks was on the track. Really? Just got down to the track, um, body weight, uh, manual exercises, push ups, sit ups, lunges, the whole thing you can think of for body weight. And then these decreasing ladders of stuff. So you do, you know, a couple of 800s, you do five 400s, then you do 10 200s, then you do 12 100s, and then you do like, a smaller number I suppose of, of 50s and it would all be we spent the first two days just working on sprinting technique and it's this kind of detail I'd never heard of this before then all of a sudden I'm introduced to for the first time to a weight room what? <laughs> what am I doing in there? Yeah. and it was right off the court so you could smell the court you could see the baskets and you just wanted to get out there but no 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 weight room four times a week four times a week first time I'd ever touched weights and, and the thing was, even everybody on the team knew it wasn't about getting buff for the beach. It was about what is functional basketball strength. And then finally you get on court and the thing I talked to you about, the fee, right, the focus, the effort, the execution was primary. It wasn't about frenetic activity. Coach would just blow his whistle if people were just running around, even though the effort was there. If you forgot the plays, you'd run There's no excuse for it You just need to know This is where you have to stand If you stood I remember this very distinctly If you stood A foot away from where You're supposed to be standing Whistle blows We run Because every detail Is so important Yeah So nothing That beginning of that season I was A exhausted And just out of my league
0: So you weren't dominating high school at all Uh, Nope There were
1: 2,000 people Showed up Our our first game In high school? Yeah We had a 2,000 seat uh, Domed arena Wow uh, it was amazing and I had three points or six points and people just look at me like really Because <laughs> you know, they, they assume that I've been playing since I was four Yeah. and then we go on this tournament the Kingdom of the Sun <coughs> tournament in Ocala Florida this is the first time I realised that America was so big that when it's in Toledo it snows like proper and then we get on this coach and it takes us to Ocala Florida next time I wake up Green grass, sunshine, amazing. Got yeah. to this tournament. There were two players there who were All-Americans. And I don't know what it was. Something about that tournament flipped a switch. And I had an amazing... Michael... Michael Smith? Michael Smith, who ended up in the league. Played against him in the league. No skills. <laughs> amazing rebounder, but not, a, not an offensive guy. Yeah, uh, Had a game against him. Played amazing. Uh, had a great tournament. And came back and just a different player my mindset now is I just want to I want to destroy you I don't just want to beat you I want to I want to make it so the next time you see me you wish you were injured and that's how my mindset changed in that tournament
0: so that was a turning point what was that halfway through your high school season
1: exactly halfway through it's the Christmas tournament in Florida right bus all the way there by the time I was taking that bus back I was a different player and that's when
0: you started getting all the offers and and everything else okay Mm -hmm. cool so yeah Penn State um, celebrity on campus uh, kind of what what were the highlights for, for you from college
1: you went to the NIT final four at one point right yeah yeah I was re- I was devastated in that yeah um, I was devastated I was devastated because I played excellently to get us to the NIT final fours and in the final fours I faced um, just a cloak of defence zone defences that, that aimed to take my inside game out of the picture and I shot you know you look at my I shot threes I shot I've always been inside-outside. Yeah. But obviously, when it counts, the closer you can get to the basket, the more files you can draw, the better you are. Yeah. And I just had so few opportunities. Um, and I remember after the game where we lost in the finals and I just sat in a press conference and stared straight ahead. And it wasn't even me being a diva. I, I, just, I was just recapping an entire season where I've got us to this point and my skills were not enough to get us over the edge. It was my fault. I definitely... Our, our rookie point guard Our freshman point guard Dan Earl, um Had played amazing He was On, on, on the all tournament team Yeah And he was sat next to me And I just I looked at him And, and I just would stare off Into space and it's like This kid Brought it and, and I brought us to this point And then just choked. And I don't think it was that showed. I think actually When you look I've got one of the games And you look at it It's just like any time I touch the ball It is <laughs> Yeah three people what year were you in,
0: in college at what was this sophomore junior year? no this is
1: got to be junior
0: junior year yeah okay brutal and then um, was it around this time that your, your mum first got ill uh,
1: my mum died uh, the end of that year
0: so obviously incredibly difficult
1: yeah yeah it was um, I mean my, my university was amazing because for all the bad stuff with the uh, with the NCAA and I've got a lot of bones to pick with them I think they they do have hardship things so I'm left at Christmas it was the only time I had the break between the the kind of non-conference and conference season we had this last game I played this last we had two games left I played uh, the second to last game before the conference season Um, went into a press room and told them I was leaving just for a game Uh, and then I was in a car driven to JFK Um, I arrived there late at night, slept in the terminal till the morning and then the only way to get me to home and back in time was Concorde. So I flew on Concorde.
0: (laughs) Amazing.
1: Uh, I I remember I was in sweats, a t-shirt, obviously i would just come from a game, I've showered but I've come from a game and I've slept overnight in a terminal and then I'm standing there in front of this Concorde lounge with my ticket and they're just looking at me like, you do not belong here. (laughs) They let me in, nonetheless. Yeah, and I'm just looking around. I ate nothing and I drank nothing. I just looked around like this amazing stuff. This I would like to have this one day. I'd like to, <laughs> able to come into this lounge again. Yeah. Um And then I sat in Concord, and I it was just in my it, there was they're very it's much smaller than people imagine. And I'm I've got two seats there next to me, and then there are two seats empty next to me. And, and the gift in Concord, at least at that time, you get a gift on board, and it's a little silver cup with silver dice in it. I've got four of those because <laughs> yes, you better believe I put my hand up. Let the flight attendant, can I have this one? Can I have that one? And I, t- I took everything I could. I've got Concord literature up the wazoo in my house. Amazing.
0: Um, so obviously that you know that affected you massively, right? And you got a little bit depressed and you started overeating and, and everything else. Yeah. Um, you know what, what made you bounce back? Um, because you mean your numbers in your senior year were still pretty solid by all accounts right
1: yeah yeah no they were good I I mean the biggest problem with my senior year was the fact that people just decided not to let me get off to good starts it was like we're not going to risk not double teaming and then starting double teaming late in the game because I knew about a bit of rhythm so the second I would catch the ball they would come at me and on the perimeter you know my first two years big guys I don't know why this is but they just didn't like, I'm standing on the three-point line, so automatically we're like, oh, okay, leave him alone. Even though now I can pick out passes and do all kinds of stuff and shoot the ball. So I got th- three threes, um, you know, and shoot them at any time. My senior year, people up in your grill. Yeah. People started putting threes and fours on me instead of fives if I got on the perimeter. It um, just became really, really tough. But the truth is that I, I started preseason, and I, and I just remember thinking my mother sacrificed for me to be here. And I sacrificed not spending enough time with my mother when she was going, when she was nearly dead. I mean, I only spent three days with her anyway, because I left school early at the end of the year because I I got a call from my mother. Um, She was very calm about it, actually. But she just said, you need to come home. (laughs) I'm dying. And uh, so I I flew home immediately. Um, Got home, It's really weird because the thing I remember most about it is walking into my house and how small it had become. How I'd I'd been to America, I'd experienced all these things and I came back to my house and it was so small. And then sitting in the corner of the living room in this big chair that she always sat in was my mother who was even smaller than I remembered and who looked really, really sick. Uh, Yeah, it was hard. Yeah.
0: So then after your senior year... I mean, I assume by this point you you knew, like it was like I'm going to be a pro. Like this is this is happening now, right? It's within it's within striking distance. Um, but you went to Portsmouth, oh,
1: didn't do too well. Oh my god. Yeah, Portsmouth's invitational. Uh, just, and I don't know what it was. I, I'd had this. the The season had ended, and, and it wasn't overconfidence. Believe me, it wasn't overconfidence. But there was just something about my season ending. My time at Penn State being over, my time as a college athlete being over, and I just didn't stick to my regime of work in the same way. So I was in good shape, but I wasn't in great shape. I'd not really played as much. People didn't, you know, my teammates. Their season was over, and if they're, you know, none of the other seniors were going to go anywhere, um, at least to the NBA. So it ended. And finding really good guys to play against was hard, and so, you know, that's that's a good excuse. The kind of me not sticking to my regime is my fault. Yeah, and I get to Portsmouth, and I'm just terrible, and I'm terrible in that format too. Um, bigs, you know, it's like Bigs in all-star games. Bigs in, uh, especially Bigs in can't dunk in all-star <laughs> games. Yeah, and um, and this type of thing it was clearly designed for guys who just create their own shot from yeah. the perimeter solely. If they pass it to a big, it's with the intention that you just hear People slapping in their hands like, give me back now. I was yeah. just, you're just so that I can reset my dribble, really. You're not there for anything else. Yeah. I only remember taking one shot in the entire tournament. I know I must have taken more, but I only meant one shot in the tournament, and that was a fast break. Where I was out, I was in the middle of the lane, they threw it over the top, I get it, I go up, and, and I'm, I'm exhausted. It's been, what, three or four days of solid playing and training and all kinds of stuff. All the, the meat market stuff where they make you run 40s and they make you do the height test, the jump test yeah. and all that stuff. I'm exhausted. And I go up and I just finger rolls on my thing. So I just finger roll over the rim, bunk off the back of the rim <laughs> and out. I miss this shot and I just, I don't know if it's real or not, but I looked around and all there are in the stands is, is scouts. And I looked around and I just see scouts kind of shaking their head and looking at pap- uh, the papers, yeah. crossing this guy off. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I did pick my agent at, at Portsmouth, which was an important step. Yeah. But I picked an agent who I knew could get me jobs in Europe. I, he did work with NBA players, but he yeah. worked in Europe because I, after Portsmouth, I was like, "How
0: difficult was draft night? Did you already know? Did you know you were going to get undrafted? I drafted? knew I was
1: gonna, not going to be drafted because during Portsmouth, I had no additional meetings. Right. And that's what you have. You get yeah. taken away. Um, my uh, and also I went to a Phoenix Invitational afterwards. Yeah, played slightly better, but not. And, and I was certainly in better shape. And during that, that's the big one where you um, where you get uh, the, the staff and the teams who want to have meetings with you. Uh, my roommate was um, what's it called, Greg Osetag. Okay. For that, and so all I did, I spent that entire time of out, off time, not on the court time, watching him come into the room, get a telephone call, leave the room. <laughs> Come back Uh, saying that was Portland. Come telephone call that was somebody else. That was Utah, and I was just like, "Yeah, tough,
0: it's not me." And then your your first pro contract in France was a two game thing to help them. Was that was that actually your first one? Yeah. So your first pro game contract, first professional contract, was to literally help a team prevent them from getting relegated or help them get promoted.
1: Help them get uh, yeah. No, it was uh, help Brendan get relegated. Cholet was very good, but had had a terrible, terrible season.
0: And yeah. so it was two games, 10 grand. Yep. So it was at that point, was that like, damn, I'm earning money from playing basketball. Like, it's become a reality, or was it... It wasn't, because... You're in order, a lot of debt as well. In right? order
1: for me to get to that stage, I had moved to Phoenix, because I found a trainer who I thought would work for me, my agent and I. And I, I lived in a, just a terrible one-bedroom efficiency that had scorpions everywhere. It was unbelievable. Every day you'd come in, and before you went to bed, you'd have to shake everything out, and there oh, would be what? another scorpion. <laughs> and you'd just have to throw them out the window and start again. And, and, um, but that trainer cost me $45,000 over the course of the summer. In um, intensive training, three so times a week.
0: So, you had to obviously, so that money didn't really even come close to covering that? Nope. Um, so your only hope after that... Was Well, your, your attempt, your, basically your idea was then to hook on with a team in training camp, right? Yeah. And that ended up being Cleveland. Yeah. Uh, with Mike, Mike Fratello. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that whole experience?
1: Um, the, Fratello, it was amazing really because of how I used my trainer to get in amazing shape. I had about 3% body fat at that point. And I remember the last few days before I went to training camp, Fratello just said to me... Um, you need to, you need. Uh, sorry, not for. T- uh, my trainer said to me, Warren. Warren Anderson said to me, you need to get in the sun. Get in the sun, and I was like, no, no, no more training today. Get in the sun. And we really reduced it down because I was in. I was right there on the razor's edge of great shape. Get in the sun, and that's all I did. In the sun, so I ended up. I mean, I was just black, yeah, black. Because, and because people's bias. Natural bias is that the darker you are, the better of an athlete you are. It's, I mean, it's slave mentality stuff, right? The darker you are, yeah. the, the more of an animal you are. Yeah. And so I did that. I showed up at, um, at camp, and the first thing that happened was this overexcited Fratello runs up to me and said, this is unbelievable. this it's unbelievable. You must have lost like 50 pounds. And I'd lost a little bit, 15 pounds or so. 50 pounds, he thought. And that just started off me on a whole new level in the camp. Where people just assumed that I and I was in great shape, could handle everything, really did a really good job. I ended that pre-preseason camp, the 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 kind of free agent camp. I ended that by dunking on two people, which is a (laughs) rarity, a big rarity for me. And I remember dunking it and the whistle blowing and Vrtila going, well, I guess that's enough. And then that was it. And then then it was, I think, four of us or five of us got to go through to the main preseason camp.
0: What was your? Do you remember what your first experiences were like of the like? That was your first experience with the NBA, right? Yeah. Like, you know, what, what were your impressions? Like, what did you think compared to other stuff you've been around?
1: I think in the in the rook in the the unsigned camp, it's a little different. The moment the pros start playing with you, you suddenly realise about this the, the pro mentality and hierarchy. I, I called a foul um, on Michael Cage. Uh, who's a good friend of mine now I, I called a foul and Michael Cage kind of looked at me and said mm-hmm, rookies don't call foul <laughs> uh, and I just realised that there's this you got to earn your keep you know that mindset that is so apparent now when you look at referees and how they interact with rookies versus how they yeah. interact with season and rookie hazing right like all the yeah. stuff the rookies have got to do and- and rookie hazing back then was I mean I had to sing the Penn State I had to sing a song Okay. so I sang the Penn State fight song because I knew it was short <laughs> and I and that was it. Now, I was a rookie with Bobby Surra.
0: Yeah, I remember him. Um, he was in bank contest one year as well. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. But wild. Yeah. Wild <laughs> back then. Maybe still now, actually. Um, and he refused to he, sing. So that just meant that he now, I didn't, I didn't carry a bag my entire ro- rookie year. Because he got it all. Because he refused to sing, he carries all the bags. Wow. It was amazing. <laughs> I'm, I was really glad he did it because I was going to have to share it all But it was, Yeah. It, it, but your introduction to the league is brutal. Uh, I, I, when, it, when it was starting preseason, I didn't have a nameplate right? everybody has a bronze yeah. nameplate with their name in Boston all the players who are under contract and all the people who are coming in to see if they're going to make it have written on a bit of masking tape their name and you would walk in and so you start off with eight people who were kind of trying out for the periphery and every day you'd walk in and, and this is like leading right up to uh, the pre with the team proper you'd walk in and a manager would walk in with a clipboard you'd look around you'd walk over to a locker usually with somebody in it and then just go <laughs> and rip the tape off and that's how you found out you weren't on the team anymore wow it's brutal Rural. so when that guy came in the room it's like your heart stops yeah and you're just sitting watching and you watch him and then it's even harder almost no, it's not even harder, but it was hard to look in the faces of somebody as the guy stops in front of them and just peels their name off. Harsh. Brutal.
0: So that you ended up getting that one year on deal,
1: right? I got a, Yeah, I got a two-year uh, two deal, that was two years. mutual option in okay. the middle. And I started off great. How did that
0: make you feel, though, getting
1: that deal? Oh, it was amazing. Was, I mean, was there a sense of satisfaction or was it like, was, this isn't enough? There was a sense of satisfaction, but it definitely wasn't, I've made it. Because yeah. it didn't feel real at that point, point. and the, the weird, the other weird part of it was that nobody cared. <laughs> <laughs> nobody cared. Uh, I, I mean, uh, nobody cared.
2: Yeah,
1: there was email now, and and I'm emailing back to to. Uh, it's not fair to say nobody. The guys I played with in that that gym in Chorlton, they care. Yeah, but in terms of the greater basketball community, yeah, nobody cared, and and the people, and especially really, in England, right? Yeah, and the people who really. Uh, People were excited about it in Penn State. The entire Pennsylvania was I got a congressional citation <laughs> from the state of Pennsylvania, right. so they were excited, yeah, England not excited England basketball i don 't even know who was part of that at that time' nothing. not excited wow didn 't get a call from them yeah, nothing it's just like, oh my god i 've done all this i 'm the only one here, yeah, but nothing wow
0: so then how was that first year obviously like you just said it started great and then midway through the season it went a little bit downhill right
1: yes yeah almost there there is a there is a time there's a time in the season where you rookie slump yeah and the wall uh, and you hit the wall and i hit the wall hard yeah because i I mean i had been in such great shape for an entire summer Uh, and getting into shape was so brutally hard too i'll tell you um then entire summer, I've gone through pre gone through pre pre preseason, um, And by the time I got to that pre-All-Star break, which is where the wall kind of smacks you in the face, I was done. I was exhausted. I, I've seen footage where I'm playing, and it's just so clear that my limited athleticism is even more limited <laughs> than normal. Uh, and at that point, it just started to slide, slide. And then I remember getting listed on the injured list which is, you know, it's, it's common. It happens to most people yeah. in the career at some point, but most non superstars anyway. I got list on the on the on that list, and I was like, God, nah, I'm not traveling with the team and they're flying away. I'm going to this. Did you start panicking at all? Like- clinic. Well, it's not panic so much as, is this it? Yeah. Have I like done one year and then I'm done? Brutal. But I stayed in shape, did my job. Um, everyone on the team was really pleased with you know me as a teammate. And then at the end of the year, I met Fratello in a corridor at the, uh, at the, at the arena, just in a corridor. And he said, Well, you, you know, we'll take you back next year. We'll take you back next year. Because they still had so few personnel. I mean, Cleveland would, the reason I got started for the Cleveland Cavaliers was because they were bad. Yeah. So let's make no mistakes. But they were still bad by NBA standards, not bad. And he said, We'll take you back next year, but you know. You know, we'll be we'll be getting a big man in the draft, and mm-hmm. so I I thought two things. One, there's not enough money in a rookie contract for me to make it for the debt that I've already got after tax, so I need to make money, and that's where Greece came up because it's amazing. Pre before you played in the NBA, Greece offers you one level. You play in the NBA all of a sudden it's a whole new level of money yeah and that's when I suddenly thought holy smokes how much is going into my account
0: you're talking about seven digits at this point right close to a million
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah crazy the this was around the time as well when the whole idea of the Amici basketball centers the network of Mm centres up and down the UK started coming about right yeah and that was in Were you talking with Joe Forber about that who's obviously like a mentor to you growing up yeah and what, what was the original vision for that? Because that actually ended up becoming almost like a motivator for you. you know, It's like the, the bigger contract I have, then the more centers I can build, the more yeah. I can give back to, to, to Barcelona in the UK. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: I think you know, I was always struck by the fact that there was nowhere to play. We bribed caretakers. I mean, this is, this is even when we were with Manchester United juniors. We were just did not even a regular place. There was one time for regular practice and then anything else extra... You'd have to bribe a caretaker or.
0: Still the same now.
1: I know, it's ridiculous. And then there's this, there's this gym that's under, um, under the Mancunian Way in Manchester. Uh, not gym, it's just outdoor court. Used to be anyway. And we used to take wire cutters and break into it and come back the next week and they've repaired it and we wire cut our way back in again. And this is before CCTV was <laughs> yeah. in. Right? But it just struck me that how can it be that if you're really willing to put in the work, if you're willing to pay the fee, how is it possible that there's no way for you to play? So I thought we'll, we'll build somewhere. As long as people are willing to work, there'll be somewhere for them to play.
0: And so you originally committed half a million dollars of your own money, mm-hmm. right, for that first center. And then is that the one that's currently up in Manchester? Yep. Uh, and then you raised a million private
1: donations. Uh, yes. So so was, uh, and and how much did it cost the whole some thing? Some government funding. Uh, I think it was in pounds. What 1.4? I think was when it built at first time. Wow
0: Yeah it's expensive When did So from that point After your first season When did the first one get built How, how much later down the line 1999 that? Uh,
1: so it was A couple of years after Yeah a
0: couple years later Okay yeah. um, And then there, So We've spoken about this A couple of years ago as well So originally there was this plan For this, this <sighs> network And it kind of hasn't happened um, Like what happened with that And you know wh- Where does it currently stand
1: Yeah that, I mean there are two things with this One I, I I tried to build a network of, of new centres, and it was right before the crash. Yeah. So, you know, part of this is bad timing, because some of the some of the assistant funding from banks, I was getting some loans, which were guaranteed, and, and I'd already arranged them. We'd signed it, and then the crash hit, and they were like, "We can't loan this kind of money for a basketball venture." That's yeah. essentially what happened. But on the other side, Sport England, Jenny Price had agreed to fund it, uh, fund part fund. Yeah. And then I had put in about, over the course of three years, probably about three quarters of a million pounds. Right. Because I revenue funded it. So four different staff members. Okay. People, architects' fees, you can't even imagine yeah. how much. architects' fees and land surveys and constant meetings across the country. And uh, and then Jeannie, Pri- I mean, the, the, once the bank pulls out, Jeannie says no. And then she comes up with some, ex- Jenny, sorry, comes up with some excuse that, that it's too too revenue intensive so w- it would make too much money but that's only because the, the gym the on-site gym facility pays yeah. so the kids aren't charged a huge amount to play yeah, yeah. It's, it offsets the cost yeah. it's, it makes no money believe me <laughs> um, and so and I, I really felt like I was burnt because I lost you know three quarters of a million pounds that's wow. a lot by anybody's money Yeah. it's a, a lot um, and then th- I could have lived with that what I couldn't live with was going to Plymouth to have uh, you know meetings and, and having members of teams that I may not disagree, may not agree with philosophically show up uh, and insist on being involved. Um, coming to London and having three different meetings with three different their team they they're, they're in charge of teams but more properly they're in charge of regions. Yeah, little fiefdoms of London. And being told, no, if you build it here, you'll be taking our kids. We're not having that. If you build it here, you'll be taking our kids. We're not having that. And I just, and that's the bit that got me.
2: Yeah,
1: it's like very that, typical. There's a lot of, um, people are willing to put money into this. And yes, you would have to coach in a certain way. You would have to do things better than you do it now. And, it, and I know there's been some improvements in some places, but there's still a lot of places where there's far from best practice coaching going on. And they just weren't interested. Uh, So much so that there was actual resistance, there was actual people writing to their MPs. And I just thought, right, you know, I'm I'm certainly not going to put another three quarters of a million pounds into something that people, and that's where we sit. I would love to do more
0: until that changes,
1: but I'm not going to fight people for it. I'm not going to fight people for ownership, fight of little spaces. I'm not interested in owning kids. Yeah, yeah. I want kids to get best practice developmental work you know done around them
0: Wow, it's a shame (laughs) like so many things in this country Um, so jumping back to your story a little bit so Greece how was that Um, you speak a a fair bit about it in your book and uh, it sounds like it was just as crazy then if not crazier than it is now in terms of the crowd and things being thrown and things being said and whatever else you know how how would you describe your first experience in in just super
1: aggressive full on 1980s football crowd style crowds. Kind had of you expected
0: games. that before you, like, no, did you have I any idea?
1: I, I didn't watch football, yeah, and I certainly didn't watch international football, yeah, so I had no idea. I, I you know, I'm used to America where it gets loud and but it's funny and loud, you know. <laughs> yeah. when, when the, when the, I mean, I, one game, I can't remember who it was, but. It's, they come up with really ingenious ways of trying to put you off and, and so they, they do things like there's a big cardboard cutout of me with a picture from a, some magazine and they put a, tap hot, uh, a top hat and a monocle on it and then just the whole audience at the, the crowd at the end behind the backboards would just be screaming we're drinking tea while I'm shooting free throws <laughs> there's another crowd that used to sing when the, the moon hits your eye like a big piece of pie that's a Michi." I don't know how that's supposed to put me off but that was what I was used to Yeah. then I get to Greece and all of a sudden my first experience first game uh, Hugo Skonakini, really good guy great player uh, we're, we're stretching a, a, a mid-court and all of a sudden he's bleeding somebody's taken a drachma as it was back then sharpened it heated it with their lighter and then thrown it Wow And so above his eyes, He's got a big cut That's how we start the game Wow And he played? He, he did play And he got it a lot too I don't know why In particular Just bad luck But further into the season We played Olympiacos And he's in, his, he's in his You know The rip-off sweats Yeah And we're stretching again And we're chatting all of a sudden Bonk, bonk, bonk It's a road flare <laughs> And he's wearing Nylon um, rip-offs And all of a sudden He's on fire Rips him off Throws him down Oh my god. People goodness. already with fire extinguishers so they know this stuff happened Shh, yeah. take it off there was no consequences well, like for nothing happened yeah. riot police there's always one if you look in games in Greece there's always one section that has nobody in it and it's just flanked by riot police yeah. to keep the two opposing sides
0: one of the, uh, the craziest stories or this, one of the most memorable stories from your book uh, is the story of the tortoise oh my goodness can you, t- can you tell the story of the tortoise
1: I, w- I was very having played in the NBA for a year I was very divish about my accommodations in Greece <laughs> And they tried to put me down near a lot of the other players, which is close to the gym. And I was like, no, this is not nice. Because Greece is smoggy. Yeah. And I wanted to be above the smog line. So I insisted on being in this area called Cafisia, which is above the smog line. It's where all the politicians, um, <laughs> the expats live. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and so I get to this house. And I've got a whole house to myself. It's lovely. Four bedrooms and I don't know whatever else. But it's a big garden. Proper Mediterranean garden rambling all over the place and I'm walking around and suddenly there's a I mean a big tortoise yeah. in my garden I'm like this is, this is a, somehow I'm super excited about this <laughs> I, have a, I have a pet it's amazing it doesn't need me but I, I'm buying lettuce and feeding it to it I mean I, we develop a relationship <laughs> this is, you know, the only relationship um, and then we, I don't know we, we have a spell of three games and I think it was only about three games where we just didn't play up to par one of them was a European game we lost to I don't know a, a Russian team in Russia which is not that uncommon yeah. even in European play and then this third game we play badly uh, and I we're on the road and I come back I come into my house and I come to my front door and there is this the, I don't I mean I, they have halved my tortoise they have gutted my tortoise and then through the shell with it's gut still hanging on they have pinned it to my front door
0: it's unbelievable
1: and, and you know I've had other stuff before I had my car vandalised All the windows smashed in it I had people writing All kinds of amazing uh, Horrible Greek words That I still remember <laughs> on, on the side of it And it's not like I think That's fair game But it's an inanimate object I can get that repaired yeah. And I'm just you know, I'm just looking at this I, I, I stayed in a hotel that night yeah. I went back down to, to Glifada the, by the airport And I just stayed in a hotel just kind of contemplated everything but brutal wow
0: and then so after Greece you returned to England right mm-hmm.
1: uh,
0: around that sort of time or was it no, Italy no uh, I went to Italy you yeah went to I went to Italy. Italy
1: okay uh, half a season in Italy and then you returned with Italy. Messina and then I came back to England and I came back to England because I was going to retire oh were you yes I was, I was I don't think you
0: said that in your book no
1: I didn't okay um, I was going to retire but my agent just and my agent was a good guy I I I don't think it was because he just wanted to make more money I think I think he actually knew that it might be just a bit premature
0: and you were only 28 29 at this point
1: yeah yeah Uh, and I just thought I was like you know what my experience here is so brutal there's no life I had no life Um, and it's not I mean it's not that I expect your profession to be fun all the time but it's it's. It was just never fun. Yeah. It's never fun, and um, so I just like right. I'm done. He said, "Come home, you know, just play here, keep yourself fresh, and then go off again." So that's what I did. Came back. Came back. I wanted to play in Manchester, but the BBL wouldn't let me play in Manchester.
0: Why was that? I. You said that in the books. Yeah. Because I, they thought it was unfair or something. They said
1: it was unfair because of the team that Manchester had at that time. Whereas I didn't want to play in Manchester because of the team they had at that time, I yeah. want to play in Manchester because I live in Manchester. Yeah. <laughs> and, and instead, they they said, "Well, no." So I picked the next. I mean, this is not a this is not an insult to Sheffield. Um, but I didn't pick Sheffield because of their st- stellar personnel or, or, yeah. or, or their front office. Certainly not their front office. Um, I picked Sheffield because <laughs> it's the quickest drive I could find. To Manchester, and boy, I could do Snake Pass in thirty-eight minutes.
0: I remember when I was younger. I read. Um, I can't even remember. They used to, they, there was a publishing company that used to publish these tiny little books that were like expert books on different sports or whatever else. And there was one about basketball, and it was like you know the real basics of how to play basketball or mm-hmm. pick up basketball. Is what this is what BBL is? And I remember there was a profile on you on it. I, this was when I was. This was when I was young. Like, and um, and it said that you. Uh, you were This was when you were playing for Sheffield. Mm-hmm. They said you were getting paid fifty thousand pounds a year. Uh-huh. Is that the level of salary that guys were getting paid back then in the BBL? No, no, that was a
1: lie. That was no, no. That uh, that that is the truth. Okay, <laughs> but it's not the level of salary that guys were getting paid back. then You're an exception. I was an exception to that. Okay,
0: but the fact that even a team had that amount of money to pay somebody, it's crazy. What would you say about the the the, the level of the BBL back then?
1: Um, I can't honestly say I felt regularly challenged On an individual basis Right um, What did you average? I don't know No But it was good numbers It was really good numbers Yeah but, uh, <laughs> It was really good numbers um, Because I, I didn't in, in the nicest possible way There's a point where you stop worrying About playing And you just play Yeah And this was it I had no further aspirations Yeah uh, I wasn't going go to go Back to the NBA I wasn't going to do anything else I was going to retire Yeah and I'm just doing this to make my agent happy.
0: But do you think it allows you to enjoy it again? Just by the fact that it was just there was no pressure, no stress. It was just like, oh, I'm just doing it. I was it. home. Yeah. And
1: it was weird that this was the first time that I got any kind of recognition for being an NBA player was now I'm back. Yeah. Or for being, not even, that's not fair, not even an NBA player, being a good player. yeah. It's like now people can see me. Now it's like so clear that if you don't do everything right, I'm just going to decimate you. Yeah. Now I'm getting some credit for it, so it was quite enjoyable from that perspective too. For the first time, people were like, "Oh, this is why. This is what he <laughs> have been talking about."
0: Yeah. Uh, How many people would come to, you to come to the games back then?
1: Sheffield did really well. They started moving. They moved to uh, Ponds Forge, I think, and so they had that big one side where was yeah. full. And everywhere I went, there were it seemed to be a lot of people. And again, I don't know if it was because of me or because Sheffield was. We were quite good as a team, and but it was it was. I was less worried about that, to be honest. It wasn't even about who came. It was like I am. This is just this is me running through, right? This is me running through the end of my career right now. So I don't finish halfway through. I'm just running through. Yeah. And I was in great shape, and I did my job, and but there was no pressure.
0: Yeah. You know. were you playing for the England national team around this time? Was this around? Yeah. This is this
1: is. I probably had in that season was probably the my I had less than ten caps at that point. Okay. And for perspective, I finish with eighteen, I think. Okay. Which is crazy when you think about it. Yeah. Um. It's just crazy. I mean, <laughs> as, as I reflect on that, it's just crazy. Um. Yeah, and it, it was, it was still at that point though, where there, it was bare bones stuff. Yeah. You'd go places, and there'd be three of you in a room, and one of you's on the floor, and it was bare bones. And I, I was why pretty did vocal you do it? Because I, I thought it was my my responsibility. I thought, it, it, what does it say if if I want to be the best player in the uh, considered the best player in the country as I did want to be at that point? Um, it wouldn't. What does it say if I refuse to to show up and refuse to play, despite the fact that I know it's going to be just a mess when you arrive? It's about playing. We we had good games. I mean, we beat Russia in that period. And, oh really? Yeah. yeah. It was it was fun and a good team. Good team. Good group of people. Who who,
0: who were you playing with back then?
1: Um, well, Bucknall would be the the, the the name that everybody would know. It was always it was always kind of interesting there because people thought we'd be fighting over shots, and it just never was the case. We just kind of played. Yeah, just played together.
0: Awesome. So then you were basically considering retiring, and then the NBA came calling again. No,
1: they did not come calling again. You went calling to them. I went calling to them. I've, what what I've made finished. it
0: change? Why, why did you decide after you thinking you were done with it, and you decided to go back? What changed?
1: Um, I said I would play in the NBA, and to me that meant play, play in the NBA. That for me that meant respect people, knowing and respecting my game within the NBA. Forget fans, yeah. forget what people think. Um, and I hadn't done that. I hadn't done that, and so
0: unfinished business.
1: Unfinished business. Had to get back to it, and so I did. I got, went back to Phoenix right after the season was over here because I'd spend a, normally I'd spend a week in England and just chill out. I didn't I just went straight back to Phoenix started training uh, at the very end of the season at the very end well what was then at the very end of the season and worked out got my agent sending out notes to people uh, I was in amazing shape I have never been in better shape than in that summer really? yeah it's so much so great a shape that before they started the, the pre-season uh, trials I was actually I couldn't understand why I would start my Workout, and by about forty-five minutes in the workout, I'd be dead, and it was because I was overtrained. And and so my again, my trainer he's an amazing guy. He's like, we're going to switch your workouts to pool, to pool workouts, and we're going to reduce them to skill workouts on the court. And we did that for a week, uh, just less than a week. And then the last two days, he's like, two days off, sit in the sun. And I, two days off, sat in the sun. Uh, Toronto is who I tried out for. I always wanted to play there. Nobody's been there. Toronto is like, okay. it's like a, even uh, Manchester's cool, but it's like a, an even cooler, slightly larger Manchester. Yeah, I love it. I love the vibe there. Um, and I went out there, got on court. The first thing we did, bleep test. <laughs> yeah. And there, are, don't forget, there are thirty-five uh, athletes there, and in that bleep test, I finished last. I finished the latest so first (laughs) uh, with a guy called Don Donnie Marshall not Donnie Marshall and so he's a three and it was him and me at the end and we didn't we didn't finish because we missed the bleep we finished because they stopped the test because they wanted to get on with the rest of it I was like yeah but Toronto it wasn't where you ended up it was Orlando (laughs) yeah Toronto I didn't end up there because they locked us out the league locked out
0: Oh, was that that yeah. year? That was 99 then. So I ended
1: up having to, no, 98. 98. So I ended up having to go to France.
0: Ah. I, I
1: waited and waited and waited, but the centre's being uh, being considered and going to be built. It's like, money is, I need, there's only so many years you can make money. I was like, yeah. I've got to play. So I ended up in Limoges.
0: Okay, so that was when you went to Limoges. Yeah. And then after that, you were to, when the lockout finished is when you went to Orlando. Yeah. Okay, so how was, uh, Orlando was where you pretty much, that was where you mm-hmm. became trying to make you the NBA yep. player, right? Yeah. Talk a little about that whole experience. It
1: was under Doc Rivers, right? Yeah. Amazing year. I went through summer, the summer league with the Orlando team, and I just I got the stats from that summer league. <laughs> uh, it's, 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 I don't keep mementos, but that, that one, good Lord. Yeah. I mean, I just, just kicking people's arse. So, and, and the NBA is very different than, than basketball over here in that the NBA doesn't get bored of what works right? And, and players on good teams anyway they don't do that thing where it's my turn to shoot now if you've gone down to the post on the left block and you scored the next play is going to be post left block and if you score the next play and the <laughs> yeah. next play and the next play and, yeah. the, and that's what we did all summer <laughs> left block me going left scoring or getting fouled free throws Back down the other end, and that's what we did all summer. Me shooting jump shots from 18 feet, top of the key, which is pretty much my thing. One bounce layups, always left from the top of the key. <laughs> Just took people to pieces. It, it was great because I made the guards look good; they made me look good. It was brilliant. Started that season, and I came off the bench and played little time. I played, you know, 10 minutes, um, but was really effective in those 10 minutes. So in 10 minutes, I have six points. Yeah. 10 minutes, I have five points and I'd stop my guy I mean there's no defensive stop anybody in the league will tell you that but <laughs> I was also playing with Ben Wallace and, and oh, okay. Bo Outlaw so really my job was the offensive side to yeah. take up from their slack of offensive side and their job was t- to play defense Yeah. in fact Ben, uh, ben and I had a deal and this is not uncommon in the league where unless it's contested and an opponent might get it if there's a rebound and he's in the area it's his really <laughs> and that's what we do all he wants is one shot in the post per game and that's what he got one, if you watch the tapes one shot in the post wow. per game and he would get every rebound because his thing his contract was reliant on him getting a double digits rebound every game and that's what he did wow yeah.
0: and so you ended up working your way into the starting lineup, right? yeah I, I <laughs> you
1: remember, I remember when that game it was uh, against New Jersey we played a game against New Jersey and Doc came to me before the game he said yeah we need to get off to a better start so I'm going to put you in the starting lineup. Uh, and I, I remember saying to him, look, I don't want to, I don't want to rattle of this cage. You know, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to do my job coming off the bench. Now, that's not something I would ever say again, I have to, <laughs> to admit. But, but at that point, and I really meant it. I was like, this is a team, because that, that team was an amazing team to play with, brilliant guys. And I didn't want to, I, we were not rolling, but we were competing at a much higher level than anybody expected. And I was like, I don't want to ruin this. And he's like, no, we need a better start. And I remember I left that conversation. I felt like I was a six year old at Christmas. <laughs> it was like Doc River, a coach I've seen play, a, a legitimate Hall of Famer, all star type. And he, he says, I should start in the NBA. I said, now I'm in the NBA.
0: So from there, like, did you feel, was that the point where you, I've made it now? Like, I've done what I have needed to do?
1: Or was it still like... No, it, it, it wasn't... That thought disappeared from that point. It yeah. wasn't about making it. You know, you know. there was a brief moment in Cleveland where I saw my name being written on the floor in laser light that I thought I'd made it. Yeah. It, the thought I'd made it actually yeah. popped into my head when I saw that <laughs> on the floor. And, and I got really... The thing in Orlando was I got hooked on the sound of people saying my name in that way that they say it. Yeah, you know, you can on the video you made from you can hear it a few times. It's like John and me, like it (laughs) takes forever. By the time I've I've scored and I've run back the floor, my name is still being said. Yeah, and I got addicted to that. I was like, yeah, I need you to be able to have to say that. And then I got off to such great starts that that's what we did every game, and so it was routine. Then I would have twelve points in the first quarter every game. Twelve points in the first quarter, have another eight points in the second quarter, uh, in the small amount in the second quarter and the, and the beginning of the third quarter, and then from probably, I'd play the first six minutes of the second, and if we're up by enough, I'm done. Okay. and it was a, that's an amazing experience, and that's the difference. That's again that professional mindset. Yeah, I know I've got 118 games or something. Yeah, yeah. If if we're going to go into playoffs, I've got 118 games. As tempting as it would be, and I've looked at my, uh, like I think my season high in the NBA is 31 points and it's like there are games that, that actually you've seen a couple of them there, yeah. there, there are games where I've got 26 points in the first half Yeah, the reason that my season high is 31 is because if I have 26 points in the first half I have done my job it means I come in and I may shoot a couple of shots in the first part of the second quarter uh, the, first, the second half sorry but then I'm done Yeah, and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to be super cheerleader for the next two quarters <laughs> and you were happy doing that yeah you? Yeah, a because then your teammates who are working just as hard as you in practice, they get to come out and actually play, and not in, not in what Americans call garbage time, right? Yeah. So, you know, four minutes into the second quarter, if we're up by twenty, I'm out. And all of a sudden, Michael Doliak, these other guys, Chris Gatling, who's a yeah, know, I what, nearly twenty year veteran of the NBA, they get to come in, and they're not in garbage time. They're in key time. Hold on to this lead. Expand this lead. Yeah. Lead, and it meant for a team. That's a different mentality because you know you're all important now.
0: Was that the best team that you played on? Like, in terms of just, I mean, the,
1: the camaraderie and the group? That may have been the only team I played on. Really? Yeah. People, people talk a lot about, te- I mean, I'm, again, it's the psychologist thing. People talk about teams and groups as if they're synonymous, as if they're the same thing, and they're not. A, a team has a very different internal structure, it's got very different relationships with each other. And in professional sports, they are rare. And the interesting part is that professional sports, one player will blow your team out of the water. That I have experienced.
0: We'll get onto that in a minute. Um, but after this year, Phil Jackson come call him, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? And this is the, this is, you know, the whole Lakers thing and that contract is yeah. what's been brought up. It's always brought up when people talk about the guy that turned down 17 million or whatever. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about what, kind of what happened?
1: Um, after that year, everybody called. Okay. <laughs> I had, um, I think, 17 different offers. Wow. And it was like being recruited again. Yeah. So I would get back, I would be in my house, and there'd be a ring uh, on the doorbell, and a delivery would be made. I've still got most of these jerseys. And it would be a New York jersey, 13, a on the back. It would be a Sacramento. That would never hold much appeal. I don't know if you've been to Sacramento, <laughs> but no thanks. Sacramento jersey, MHG thirteen on the back. Phoenix, my local team, um, and I never wanted to. I was very the reason I'm very careful. I, I tried to stay as far away from where I lived so that people wouldn't know you as well, okay. and you could kind of have bit of separation, a bit of separation of of your of your professional life. So I didn't want to play there, but there it was, and you just you get started getting random phone calls. You know, this is this is such and such a player from such, and it would always be an all star. Saying hey, how you doing? You know, Chuck. I don't know where he was at that point, but somewhere. And I knew Charles because he lived in Phoenix anyway, okay. so we met up a few times. And and you know, get a call from Dr. J. Dr. J was the president of the Magic at the time. Uh, hey, John. John, how you doing? This is Dr. J. Hey, he calls himself Dr. J, which is just gold. <laughs> but uh, you know, so and then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm walking to I'm fin- in, in between workouts. I'm gone to this place that I go to get salad and soup. Hard to believe that I used to do that And um, I'm just about to walk in the door And I get a call And it's And it's Phil Jackson He's like um, Yeah we want you to come up to the Lakers uh, Full full length contract That means seven years So you're, you're tied in for, that, for me that would be the rest of my career I'd be done Yeah Yeah we want you I don't know if you're going to start I don't know if you're going to back up Shaq I'd like to see if you can play four. I played four already but, <laughs> um, but yeah I'd like to see if you can play four so, so he, he arranged for me to go to uh, Los Angeles stayed at the Waldorf Astoria in a ridiculous suite that was bigger than my house <laughs> I'm downstairs having well, about to have a breakfast meeting with him and he's not there yet but um, I can't remember his name really famous GM of, of the Lakers he's not there anymore I'll think of it. Um, and all of a sudden, there's this noise, and you can see in the kind of the the, the, the entrance archway to the hotel on the other side, motorcycle pulls up, helmet, goggles, Phil Jackson <laughs> on a Harley, pulling through. Stand. Does, doesn't do any doesn't park it anywhere. Just stops there, leaves it there, and people are like, oh, "I got that." Walks in, sits down, and we have a chat about. Uh, going to the, the Lakers and then it wasn't long after that that the, the day after that I think I was there for three or four days the day after that I'd, I'd gone to the gym that was that was amazing I went to their practice facility and I walked in and I looked at the guys trying out on the summer camp team and I was I, I can't even think of the words but I just I looked at them and I was like I am not you anymore <laughs> I'll see you in pre <laughs> <laughs> yeah they gave me some Lakers gear I took it gladly um, and then I then I, then I, then I went back uh, no then I had a dinner at this lovely Italian restaurant uh, with the GM and he said look this is what can offer you this is the maximum we can Mitch Cup check yeah this is the maximum we can offer you
0: was 17 million this is a bit more than that but it was good okay <laughs>
1: um it even took me to this house on the beach, Manhattan Beach I think it was, is that right? Yeah. And I remember looking around this house and I just, I, the guy, Mitch, I was like, I can't afford this. I said, you can now. <laughs> got on the plane and went back home and they're still getting calls off people. I got a call probably three or four days later, hey Mitch, it was Jack. <laughs> <laughs> we have a five minute conversation about absolutely nothing because it's very clear that he's been told to call me <laughs> yeah. need you as a backup i was <laughs> like alright thanks you've done your job <laughs> I wanted to go there really badly I wanted it more than anything else I knew that I'd win four championship rings and I knew I'd be able to come back to England and no one would ever be able to say anything to me
0: so this was just before they this was before they'd th- done the 3 P, right yep. Okay, so you would have been a part of that 3 P. Yep.
1: had I not played a second
0: by yeah. the way had yeah. I done
1: nothing <laughs> I would have been a part of that But you felt Loyalty to Orlando Because they were the ones That took the risk on you In the first place when no one else would Nobody gave me a shot They gave me a shot it w- and, and believe me People think I'm naive I knew they were going to screw me Did you? I knew They're a professional sports team Of course mm. they're going to screw me Because
0: they basically said to you You come back with us this year Take a, take a small contract this year Because we can't afford it And, we'll and next max. year We'll, we'll reward you, you. Yeah. That is what they said Yeah but then basically the season started and about midway through the season you realise that ownership aren't talking to you anymore yeah. and you're about to get shafted. And I realised that on
1: the floor I've gone from uh, probably a 50-50 split between jump shots and post to all of a sudden Tracy McGrady's here. And at some games 45% of my post is gone. And again, I'm a, I was a good jump shooter. But there's a, there's a different mindset comes about if all you are able to do is shoot jump shots. Especially since I'm not shooting uncontested jumpers anymore, yeah, so all of a sudden I've gone from this 50 50 split where I start games and, and I'm the first person to touch the ball and i uh, there's some, there's something about that you just get used to I'm the one who kicks this team off and gets yeah. it rolling all of a sudden, Tracy McGrady's in and, and he's the one getting the ball, and in such a way that now I've moved from and when you switch to jump shooter, people don't realize there are priorities on a court, right. There's, there's, a, there's a piece of tape that I show uh, players a lot, which is a play where we've run, and it's very clear that the guard comes off a of pick and roll, he fakes once to his two, he fakes a second time cross-court to his three. I'm the third option as five in the corner. And I get it and I nail it, but I'm the third option. Yeah. Whereas I, first option Yeah. I'm on the post.
0: And you said to me before that you kind of knew that year the moment from like straight away when T-Mac first came in you were screwed
1: oh yeah why is that why? Not, not just me screwed I knew, I knew we were screwed yeah because we were we were a unit that we came in on time if somebody was late we called the police because we thought that they must have had an accident on the way or some emergency at home yeah that, that was reliable feet. and yeah yeah. I mean the one time I was late for practice is because I lost my uh, nephew at uh, Disneyland <laughs> <laughs> I don't like to talk about it too much but um uh, my, my sister had been visiting and I lost my nephew and my kids I had kids at that time uh, by that time uh, you had adopted two kids right yeah, yeah. and I lost them at Disneyland uh, late because <laughs> we used to go at night they loved Epcot Centre yeah, and they loved the fireworks at the end of the yeah. night so it's it's late and you but so it was one o'clock by the time I got back and I was frazzled and I was late for practice the next morning um, and Doc was really mad about it and then he heard that I didn't tell him why and then he heard the news report. Why? Because I'd mentioned it to a reporter that had lost my my kids at Disneyland, <laughs> my nephew. And he was like, "I need mean, to say so. We're a family. I understand that. That makes sense. And That's the only time you were late when it's something really." Yeah, new. yeah. And the first day of practice. First day of practice. We're all there. There's a juice bar in the locker room. And like somebody there to make smoothies, professional, it's amazing. <laughs> There's muffins and anything else you want to eat. So people tend not to just show up for practice they tend to get there early we, we talk we communicate yeah. and it's great is that we're sitting here and we're looking around the locker room and I've got uh, because of how I was considered I had the two rookies next to me um, on our team that, that year uh, which I wasn't pleased about because that means less space but I knew why they'd done it and then I'm looking around like they're here all my players are here which means one person we got on the court, we started our warm-up, through the door, in his sibby, comes T-Mac, and I remember just, I didn't say anything to him, I didn't say anything to anybody, I just looked at the floor as I ran, and I was like, we're, we're, we're screwed.
0: Was that a recurring theme all year? Was he regularly late and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And his effort was kind of up and down, because and he had so much skill. Yeah, all the talent in the world, he was one of the oh, best players in the league but I, I tell you, but until you've been anywhere near him, you don't realise how much really uh, like I played against Grant Hill in his prime when, you know in my first year in the league and there was, there was nothing about the experience of playing against him that is like the experience of playing against T-Mac really? his physical ability his quickness his ability to finish the um, ability to get on a hot streak and really shoot it uh, I mean unbelievable but only if he's really in the mood it was tough
0: so then was it after this year? Uh, so after this year, you basically got shafted, but then Utah came, right? Uh-huh. Now, see, I always thought that when you lost the offer from the Lakers, that was it, and you didn't get any other big deals or anything know. else. But, so Utah ended up coming in, yeah. giving you an offer that was pretty similar to the Lakers, a little bit less, but that's still nice. decent money. Yeah. And that's where you ended up signing, right? Yeah. And then there were some issues there, right? Now, I remember, I actually remember... Where well, you had a disagreement with Jerry Sloan, it was in the British papers, it was yeah. in the Independent, my dad was reading it. And I remember him saying, Oh, there's an article about, um, about John Amici in the, in, the, in the newspapers. I was like, Really? So I, I remember reading it, and obviously, there it was like you and him had obviously had huge disagreements, and you were willing to talk to the press about it, and it caused all sorts of problems. Oh, it did, yeah, I got in
1: trouble for that. So well, what I happened? Got fined. I got fined like $50,000. Did that. you? Yeah. Wow. Um, totally worth it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, the, the thing is, people imagine, because I'm a difficult character, I think now, that I've always been this. And I wasn't when I played. I, I just I wanted sound direction and, and do my job. Yeah. What I didn't like, this guy called me, see you next Tuesday, every single day. Really? Every single day <laughs> he called me that. Wow. And there was a point where I'm sitting here thinking, I have an older white gentleman calling me this word. I'm not sure if this is the word he'd like to use or if he'd like to use something even stronger but it shows total contempt for me I remember him coming up to me and asking if I love basketball and, and you know, this is the person who's I've adopted kids at this point uh, and I've got a family nieces and nephews and, and, and my sisters and I'm thinking that's a that, uh, what a dumb question uh, I like basketball it's a great job it's an unbelievable job but six years well at that point it was a bit more than that six or seven or eight nine years ago I was a fat kid on the streets of Manchester I've worked to come here I have sacrificed I don't know how many memories I could have had with my mother to be here you know I have no social life and and most of that was simply because I didn't think I could have spend any time not focusing on basketball as opposed to anything else and you're you're challenging me about my commitment here, where I play with guys who talk about loving basketball to the media, and then quibble with their seventeen million dollar contract per year about an extra four hundred thousand. Yeah. So don't talk to me about this. And, and that was when I, I really just it really stuck in my craw, if you like. I was I was, I was really angry that he challenged me with this idea that I didn't I wasn't committed. When I'm the fat kid who eats cake, yeah, and I've got four percent body fat and never less. Yeah. never more then sorry I'm the guy who shows up pre preseason. I was one of the guys who was um Karl Malone used to love to, to do like outdoorsy stuff to get in shape so he'd call you up and, and say come around to the house the house is just full of dead stuff right? <laughs> yeah. dead animal heads everywhere and then he'd have a bike for you and you'd go riding in the mountains but it's not not, not like 2 miles like 25 miles riding up and down in mountains it's yeah. a great way to get in shape but I, that was summer time when I could have been in Phoenix and I was there yeah and, my, and I thought my commitment was clear but he just wasn't having it And it was then, a then, four year deal was it in Utah? yeah it's just all kinds of stuff that went on there I did being, it go downhill
0: straight away from that first season oh yeah big yeah. time
1: big time yeah I mean there's so many things that, that happened there uh, you know I had a conversation with a trainer there who talked to me about how black people don't appreciate stuff and it's, it's just it, there was a crazy amount of stuff that went on there yeah well, Utah's very like, well, you know, how it is. <laughs> it's got some issues. Yeah. I mean, it, it's much improved now, I think. Yeah. They've really kind of grown up and become a bit more worldly and connected. But, yeah. but at that time, I think they were. And plus, they, that guy was so old school. I mean, he just was rude all the time. Yeah. And, and differentially so. So he's never rude to Carl, never rude to John. And whilst you might say, of course not, they're the superstars it says something it says you're not a team yeah and it's not that you can't get mad because good lord i'm I've, i do things on a fairly regular basis that make people mad and i expect <laughs> a mad response from that yeah what i don't expect is to just have it all the time as a routine like there are days where we'd start something and if i asked a question because i didn't because I missed something and I was really trying, it would be oh, da 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 da. See you next Tuesday, and it'd be like, really? Yeah. This is we're five minutes into practice here. Yeah. So it just cumulatively carried over to a point where we were gonna come to blows probably. And
0: you so how long did you last there? How
1: many years? were you? I left in my third year. Oh, so you were there three years. Yeah. Okay. I left in my third year, and I found out that I was leaving as I was heading to a friend of mine's house for a house party, and I got a call that said. Um, I don't know what the name of the guy was I can't remember the name of the GM there but the the GM or assistant GM called up on my mobile and just said yeah John we have traded you you need to be in Houston in three days wow thanks wow literally just said thanks and then hung up that was it wow so I had to arrange to I mean they, they reimburse you but you have to arrange to travel you've got a house there you've got all your life yeah um so I had to whiz off to Houston, and then Houston was the last stop. Yeah, I, I mean Houston was. I love JBG, uh, really good guy. Jeff Van Gundy is a really good guy.
0: Who was on the Houston team back then?
1: Oh Jesus!
0: Trying to think what uh, what side it was. It would have been. I
1: don't even remember. To be honest, was Yao there already? Yes, Yao was there. Oh, Yao was, Yao there. was there. Okay. Yeah, playing against him in practice was fun. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it actually wasn't bad because uh, most big players, I have really good records against yeah I I don't try and out big bigs yeah you know that that that, uh, what's he called the kung fu guy I can't remember his name Bruce Lee yeah Uh, he said you know you don't box a boxer you don't you don't wrestle a wrestler and so I never tried to dunk on Shaq I never tried to I just stayed away shot 12 15 foot jump shots if if they came out further shoot 18 foot jump shot no 7 foot 4 guy wants to come out to 18 feet easy so when your basketball career came to an
0: end obviously unlike many players you kind of knew where you wanted to go and what you mm. wanted to do right was there any part of was there any part of you that was sad that it was over or was it just like oh I'm ready for the next
1: stage no I was ready I was ready I was really happy I came home I uh, got flat in Manchester um, and I I just went out a lot yeah <laughs> went out a lot I did it was a nuts time did you pick up basketball at all or was it literally you just were done um, I think I, you know what I I made a mistake with that actually because I came back and I, I was like, I should do something maybe, and so I actually ended up playing for the Magic, and it was a huge mistake in what like Division One or yeah really yeah, that's okay. like, it was a huge mistake because I, I I was out there and I knew I, I was doing something good for the club yeah we had big audiences that really helped yeah. you know a bit of extra funding for us, but. You know, Jeff Jones was the coach and he and I famously don't see a tie on anything. Yeah. Um, so that was a problem. And then I just suddenly realised, I retired. In my head, I retired. And so I got on the floor and it's like my performance was just like, yeah, I think there's maybe one game where I played like an NBA player. Yeah. And then the rest of them I just passed off, a little bit of rebounding, yeah. a couple of layups. And it, it was a mistake. Yeah. I definitely shouldn't have played for them. I, I was with all the right reasons I think I was trying to do something good for the club and it did help a bit of publicity a bit of exposure but I should have just stuck to drinking gin and tonics that's what I should <laughs> you know I really should I should have just done that that I am good at
0: and so so now I've asked you this question before but just for everybody else like what is it that you actually do
1: talking for a typical week in the life of John M.H.E alright I am an organisational psychologist so that means that when there's usually three different areas I I help companies with transition and individuals with transition so uh, when they're coming into a company I help companies organize their recruitment uh, to make sure that the right people are there I help those new recruits understand the culture of the company and fit in as quickly as possible. Senior managers and managers as they kind of develop up the ladder I help them understand how to manage people properly um, how to manage themselves and their time uh, this makes it sound really basic I suppose but that's one side of it and yeah. the other side of it is crisis management so I work with companies that really screw up I can't talk about any of them but yeah. specifically but I work with a company that's got a $3 billion class action lawsuit against it right now and my job is to help them understand how this problem happened I'm, obviously, I'm not working on the legal side but yeah. how did this happen how, how can we prevent it happening in this specific area again how can we make sure that we're not doing similar things in other areas so it's a pretty extensive job and I'm on site which is why I'm in America 10 days a week uh, 10 days a month sorry uh, okay. um, working with companies over there and I'm in probably mainland Europe about a week of every month and then the rest of the time I'm in England in Manchester? not very much in the, probably in the last 4 months I've been in Manchester 20 days ok
0: and then also you do a lot of talking as well still.
1: Yeah, I do a fair number of speech. I guest lecture. So uh, I guest lectured at the Sorbonne in Paris last, I don't know when it was, a month ago. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. And then UEL. And yeah. I guest lectured there. I don't again, I don't know when it was, but recently. yeah. Um, and then Manchester as well. So, And then, so what's in the future now? Like, What, what, your,
0: what, what are you working towards? What are your goals and hopes for the next sort of 10, 15, 20 years? I
1: don't know I mean I'm pretty pleased with my progress in the industry I'm in I'm regarded as an expert and and I quite like that I do a lot of work with NBC and MSNBC in the the States well CNN Uh, I'm one of their official pundits so I'm quite pleased about that progress and I want to continue that I'm supposed to be writing a book I'm not at the moment but I'm supposed to be a new book yeah new book it's not basketball related it's it's the, the kind of science of my job related right uh, I'm trying to steer it away from being a self-help book but something in that kind of area um, I do a bit of broadcasting and I enjoy that when it's got some meat to it um, I'm scheduled for um, what was Joey Bond on the other day I haven't got a clue question time okay Yeah, you got question time that's my next deal okay um, so and, and you know I dabble in politics a little bit but nothing that I can to talk about at this point <laughs> yeah um on the basketball side i'm this summer as you as you know already uh, this summer i intend to get more involved um i'm not I'm, it's definitely not uh, a rehabilitation of what people think of me because frankly i'm just too old to care um but what i i do want to do is remove the excuses So I am under the firm understanding that I have never been consulted by anybody. Um, The the new independent members of the AB board have, and that's in the last year. Prior to that, I have not, uh, and prior to being on the board of England basketball, however many years ago that was, I've never been consulted. In the whole GB program, never consulted. Um, Aside from the choice of coach, which I was on the panel for that and at the end of that panel I said that we should not choose any of those candidates um, not to slight any of them but because they weren't good enough to help us get what we need to get the choice of head coach for GB yeah and the choice of head coach for GB came down to the fact that we had to pick somebody not we because I abstained. the panel had to pick somebody who would work for free for the first 10 months so this was for the Olympic cycle
0: uh-huh. talking about Finch yeah okay Yeah. and this is nothing I
1: mean I've played for for Chris it's not about him as a coach he wasn't what we needed what we needed was tab I can't remember his last name but he took New Zealand from okay to good yeah that's the kind of coach we needed He could really help a team make that transition but we needed a different formulation of team probably as well to make that happen um so what I'm trying to do is make it so that no longer can there be excuse that, you, that I am unreachable that you can't so now I'm throwing it out there that people can access my expertise if they want it and it won't cost them anything Yeah. so now we'll see if, you, if you're interested it would, and I would like to point out it wouldn't have cost them anything in the past if it's like EB or GB yeah. but now that it'll be explicit and I'm hoping that by going around the country and delivering some days of coaching to both coaches and to participants and players we'll be able to raise some standards get some new best practice out there and and help give kids an opportunity. And are you planning
0: on are you hoping on this to be a regular thing like for the next few summers like yeah or, yeah. yeah no no
1: I'm, this this is a I mean, it's a big commitment for me in terms of time because obviously I have to take time away from clients but this is important enough that I I'm, I'm going to do it every summer. But if if I end this summer and and three people have asked um, for one of these three days then yeah. then maybe I won't continue it because yeah. I'm not going to keep fighting yeah, yeah. the fight for British basketball while at the same time yeah. British basketball calls me a dick yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: yeah of course so when it's all said and done like how, how, what do you want your legacy to be how do you want to be remembered
1: I set out to make people have to consider me the best basketball player that Britain ever produced in my era and um, even people who don't like me have no choice in that
0: Job done. Yeah,
1: I mean, there are there are good players out there, um, and I'm I'm hoping that in the future, will our system will be less terrible, so that they'll they'll have their chance in the NBA. But at the moment, Luau clearly is is a far better player than I ever would be or never thought I could be. But you should check out his country of origin on (laughs) NBA.com now. Um, and then Joel, uh, who I rate as a player. Um, but yeah I, I was better than him too <laughs> and not as fit, not as athletic I yeah. wish I was athletic as that guy but yeah so this I'm still in the top three that's alright
0: so uh, just before we wrap up is there anything you want to plug how can people get in touch
1: with you how can people follow you um, people can follow me on Twitter at John as long as they spell it right they'll find me um, I'm pretty good at answering on that too uh, especially if you're not a troll um, <laughs> when you will get blocked <laughs> yeah exactly instantly <laughs> I don't have time for that anymore uh, I've got a Facebook page as well I use that less to be honest but uh, Twitter is probably the best place um, and then pretty soon through through hoopsfix.com they'll be able to get in touch and see if we can uh, start raising some standards awesome <laughs>